You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 5 with Daniel Pell. All right, good evening and welcome back to our series Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. We have come already to our fifth part, and our title tonight is A Judgment in Our Favor. A Judgment in Our Favor. We're going to continue our studies in the book of Daniel. We have already covered quite a number of chapters, and as you understand, this is a series of 14 parts, and we won't be able to uh, go in depth in each and every verse, but what we are trying to do is grasp a big picture of the book of Daniel as well as a big picture of the book of Revelation. And so um, we're kind of flying over these books, getting a bird's perspective and an understanding of the times in which we're living. And that includes an understanding of the past because many of these prophecies are also uh, predictions that were given long time ago. And many of, many of these predictions have already come to pass. And uh, of course, this um, really gives us even more trust in the word of God. It builds our faith in God's word as we see the authenticity of prophecy and the authenticity of God's word. So we're going to get right into our presentation because we have quite a lot to cover. We have again two parts that we're going to do tonight. Part five, a judgment in our favor. And then part six, as you have your flyer, you will see there the title is a peek behind the scenes, a peek behind the scenes. And that's actually quite a, quite a journey, that presentation. So um, get ready for... Um, a journey in prophecy, a journey in history, a journey in the Word of God. And of course, again, we do not want to um, embark upon this journey without the blessing of God. So let us have a word of prayer before we open God's Word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can be together again, and we thank you that we can continue our series on Bible prophecy. We pray that you will be near us as we open the pages of Scripture we ask that you will take us by the hand and guide us through these incredible stories, these incredible historic events and prophecies. Um, we know that in ourselves, Lord, we cannot understand these because your word tells us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so we ask for that spiritual discernment tonight. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a little review as to what we looked at in our last presentation. And again, we begin our journey in the realm of Babylon. Babylon is the backdrop of the story uh, of Daniel. He was taken as captive and um, he spent his, the, the major part of his life in Babylon where he recorded the various dreams and visions that we encounter in this book in the Old Testament. Now, we looked in our last presentation at a vision or a dream that Daniel had, which is recorded in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And that's exactly where I want to pick up the story tonight. We're going to look at the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. We're just going to kind of review it as to what we looked at in our last presentation. And then we're going to look at some more details of that prophecy that we didn't get to cover in our last presentation. And from there, we will continue in chapters 8 and 9. And so, really, these chapters, they form a unity together. Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 9. And I hope that by the end of this presentation that you'll be able to have uh, a better picture, a better understanding of these three chapters and the theme that runs through these chapters, through these prophecies. Well, we turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and right there at the beginning of that chapter, at the outset of that dream, we encounter some prophetic symbols. In Daniel chapter 7, and you can turn with me there and follow along in your Bible, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were steering up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other." So you will remember that four beasts came up out of the sea. Daniel beheld these beasts. And the Bible told us right in the very same chapter, in Daniel chapter 7, that a beast represents a kingdom. You find that both in verse 17 and in verse 23. And so you will remember these four beasts. We'll just quickly go over them again. The first beast that came up out of the sea was a lion with eagle's wings. 
And this was a representation of the kingdom of Babylon. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah the prophet pointed to the king of the north that was coming, and he described the king of the north in the following way. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7 and 13. It says, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way, and his chariots like like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. So the king of the north, the king of Babylon, is likened both unto a lion and uh, also uh, he is swift like eagles. Well, there we have that representation of the lion with the wings. Uh, As I also mentioned in our last presentation, archaeologists have discovered many of the ruins of Babylon and indeed the lion with the wings was the national uh, creature or the national animal of Babylon. And so we have Babylon represented by the lion with the wings. This is a repetition and enlargement of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 where we have the golden head representing Babylon. Well, we move quickly on because we have quite a lot to cover tonight, and this is merely review. Uh, The second beast that comes up out of the sea is a bear with three ribs, and we just follow the historic uh, narrative, the historic story here, and the very next kingdom that came on the scene is none other than Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia reigned from 539 to 331 BC, and it correlates or corresponds with the chest and arms of silver in the first image there in Daniel chapter 2. And then you have the third beast coming up out of the sea. There were four in total. The third beast is described as a leopard having four wings and four heads. And the nation that rose after Medo-Persia, or the nation that conquered Medo-Persia, was, of course, the nation Greece. And uh, uh, the commander, Alexander the Great, was, uh, was the ruler of Greece, and he led his armies against Medo-Persia, and they conquered Medo-Persia in the year 331 B.C., and they reigned until 168 B.C. And, of course, this again, going back to the first prophecy there in Daniel chapter 2, the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that he had with those medals that represent different kingdoms, this beast corresponds with the bronze, the thighs of bronze. Well, then we have the final beast, the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. It was a ferocious dragon, and uh, I don't know if you remember the description that we read. It couldn't even be likened unto anything from the animal kingdom. It was ferocious, it was strong, it was fierce, it had iron teeth. And there were some details regarding this beast that became very important for us as we studied this one a little bit more in depth. Because what we saw was that the the fourth beast had horns upon his head. As a matter of fact, he had ten horns upon his head. This is a representation of Rome, this fourth beast, which reigned from 168 BC to approximately 476 AD. Now, the ten horns upon the fourth beast are representing the ten nations that came out of the Roman Empire when it fragmented or when it fell apart, um, which happened, of course, through war and through uh, deceit from within and oppression from without. Rome fell apart. And the Bible even tells us there in Daniel chapter 7 that the ten horns represent ten kings, ten kingdoms. This is, this is again, no guesswork here. The Bible reveals it right there in the very same chapter. So what we see here is a lineup of kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the division of Rome. And the ten horns representing the division of Rome or Western Rome uh, right there after its breakup. Here you just have a list of those nations and, and, and how we know those nations today. Now, three of them you will note there, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, are now extinct. In other words, they are no longer they're no longer here. Now, that also plays into the prophecy because the prophecy tells us that the little horn that would come up out of the fourth beast would uproot three of the horns upon that head of the fourth beast. And so, again, here, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then we have the ten horns upon the fourth beast, the division of Rome, and then the Bible told us there in Daniel chapter 7, that a little horn comes up out of the head of the fourth beast and it uproots 
three of those ten horns. And those are the very nations that are now extinct, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. And we identify the little horn power. Basically, it's very easy to identify because there are so many identification marks that it's really hard to go wrong on this one. Um, it is a power that came up after the division of Rome. It was a nation um, or a power that spoke blasphemy against God. The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 7 that he spoke great words against the Most High. It says also in Daniel 7 that he persecuted the saints. In other words, he made war on God's people. And this power was instrumental in overthrowing the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Now, putting all those facts together, there's only one power that matches this description, and that is Papal Rome, which followed Pagan Rome. You basically have two phases of Rome. You have Pagan Rome with all the emperors like Caesar and Augustus and all those. And then you have Papal Rome, which was really the Church of Rome, which received power when Constantine transferred his capital from Rome to Constantinople, and he crowned the papacy with power in Rome. And history reveals that the Roman church received the prestige and the power and the authority from pagan Rome, and they were instrumental, indeed, in um, making war on the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. So very clear from prophecy which power we are dealing with here. Now, this is a little bit of what we covered yesterday. So if you're here now for the first time and you want to go back and study that, do that. Go back and get that presentation and go over it where we looked at detail and even many more identification marks uh, from the book of Revelation. But I hope that this suffices for now as we move forward because what happens next in Daniel chapter 7? This is something that we didn't look at in our last presentation. Take notice of Daniel chapter 7 and... Verse 9. Verse 8 talks about the little horn, but then what's the next event on the horizon? The little horn is reigning. The papacy has authority and power, especially during the Dark Ages. You'll remember that from the Dark Ages, there was a period that is even mentioned in the Bible, a prophetic period of 1260 years that the papacy ruled from 538 AD to 1798 AD, which was a period that the church and state were united. And so what the church said, well, you had to obey because the state enforced it. And there was a great persecution um, throughout Western Europe. This is the time that is also known as the Dark Ages. Now, the next event in Daniel chapter 7 brings us to an interesting, interesting moment. Verse 9, and I want to read it here from Daniel chapter 7. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before, from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I want you to take notice of that language there. The court was seated and the books were opened. What we now encounter in Daniel chapter 7 is a scene of judgment. We're talking here about a court. We're talking about books that are open. We're talking about a judgment that is taking place. And then when you continue to read in Daniel chapter 7, you read how that horn, that little horn, that antichrist power of Bible prophecy is now judged in front of this heavenly uh, council. As a matter of fact, why don't we just read a couple of verses there. Verse 11 says, I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So it's, just, it's talking about this, this grand, uh, big uh, judgment moment uh, in which the Antichrist power, this little horn power that has made war against the saints, is now judged itself by this heavenly council. And so the sequence that I want you to remember here is quite simple. The prophecy begins with the kingdom of Babylon in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Then it moves to Medo-Persia. Then it moves to Greece. Then it moves to pagan Rome. Then it moves to papal Rome. And then finally, the scene that we then encounter in Daniel chapter 7 is the judgment scene. There is a heavenly judgment now, and there's actually one more thing that you encounter in Daniel 7 right after that judgment, and that's very good news, and that is the very coming of Jesus Christ himself.
It says in verse 13 and 14, if you look at Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." And so we have the sequence of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome, judgment, and then we have the coming of Jesus Christ himself. So there's a judgment just prior to the coming of Jesus, just before Jesus received his, receives his kingdom at last. Now, Daniel chapter 7 can really be divided into two parts. What I was just reading is really the first 14 verses that deal with the prophecy itself. And then you go to the second portion of the chapter, verse 15 to verse 28. The rest of the chapter deals with the interpretation of the vision that has been given. And isn't it, isn't it great when you receive a vision to have someone there that can explain it to you? And this is exactly what Daniel had. He received not only a dream, but then suddenly there was a heavenly messenger that stood by his side and that gave him understanding of that dream. Now, with this sequence in mind, with this, uh, with this understanding in mind, we now want to turn to Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to again encounter the principle of Bible prophecy, which is repetition and enlargement. We've been given a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. What we're going to find in Daniel chapter 8 is somewhat a repetition of what we've seen in Daniel chapter 7, but then again enlarged upon certain aspects that are very important for us, specifically this judgment scene. And so take note as we turn to Daniel chapter Chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, and let me begin reading in verse 1. Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So what does Daniel see? Again, he sees a beast. This time it's not like the beasts that he saw in Daniel chapter 7. It's quite a different kind of beast, actually. He's looking here at a ram. In Daniel chapter 7, he was looking at a lion, at a bear, at a leopard, at a ferocious creature. Here in Daniel chapter 8, he encounters again a beast, but it is a ram, and one horn is longer than the other. We'll come back to that detail in just a bit. But take notice what happens next. Verse 4. Verse 4, it says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, and that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. But then, just as it seems that this beast, this ram, has everything to say that he is ruling there, another beast comes on the scene. Look at verse 6, verse 5 rather. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, verse 6. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So we have a, a, an interesting scene here, a very amazing scene for Daniel to behold. First, there's a ram that seems to have all power, all control. But then a goat comes from the west and defeats the ram. Now, what are we looking at here? Again, we don't have to go very far in order to find the understanding of this vision. Again, we can remain in the very same chapter. In Daniel chapter 8, we find the interpretation of what this means. Daniel chapter 8 is similar, similar, has a similar structure to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, you had the dream, and then you have the second part of the chapter was the interpretation. So in Daniel chapter 8, you have the dream or the vision, and the second part is the interpretation. So before we go further into the vision of Daniel 8, let's just go a little bit down to verse 15 and take notice of the understanding that is given to Daniel regarding the, what, the, what the ram and goat represent. 
We'll pick it up in verse 15, Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. Then it happened while I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So Gabriel, that exalted angel that has access to the throne of God, is now sent to the prophet Daniel to give him understanding of this fascinating dream, this fascinating vision. So Gabriel comes to Daniel and look at verse 17. So he came near where I stood and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. I guess we would do the same with such a great angelic being standing before us. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for the appointed time of the end shall be. Now, verse 20, here it comes. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Medo-Persia. Now, that's clear language. The ram that you saw, they are representing the ram that you saw having the two horns. They are the kings of Medo-Persia. So again, we don't have to guess here. The prophecy, Gabriel itself, the angel gives the interpretation to the prophet and says, that ram represents Medo-Persia. And then listen to what he says next, verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So the ram represents Medo-Persia and the goat, the he-goat, represents Greece. And now that horn that is that, 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 uh, upon the goat is the first king, and that's of course none other than Alexander the Great, which led his army against the, Medo, the Medes and the Persians. Now, um, as you look at the directions of where these beasts are heading... Uh, the Bible tells us that the ram, if you go back to verse 4, it pushed westward, northward, and southward. And that's exactly the direction that Medo-Persia came from. And then when you look at the ram that comes against him, or the goat rather, that comes against him, he comes from the west. And that's exactly where Greece came from. I hope that you can just picture the kind of the map in your mind of those, uh, of those days and the kingdoms and where they reigned. The prophecy is very exact. The prophecy is very precise. The prophecy points us to the nations that would come and fall, that would rise and fall before, um, uh, from, from the very days of, prof, of the prophet where he was living and into the future. Remember that these prophecies are given between five and six hundred years before Christ to Daniel the prophet when he is, un, he is still in the time of Babylon. Medo-Persia has not yet come. Greece had not yet come. And yet the, prophet, the prophecy and the dream is showing him what is going to happen in the future. It's absolutely fascinating for us to be able to study these things and see how history has fulfilled and prophecy has fulfilled and history confirms that prophecy fulfilled. Now look, let's look at what happens next. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, we go back to, to um, the actual vision here. We saw the goat, uh, we saw the ram, then we saw the goat. And what happens next? Verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So the, you will remember the goat. I don't really have a picture of it here, but I hope that you can just imagine it for a moment. You have the, uh, the goat with the one horn. The one horn breaks off, and then four horns come out of, 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 of this beast. And listen to the description in verse 8. It says, um, The large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Verse 9, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. So we read about uh, one of those horns growing exceedingly. Now you will remember that when Alexander the Great died, which was that notable horn, the first king, what happened to his empire? If we just back up to Daniel chapter 7, you will remember that the beast in Daniel 7 that represents Greece was the leopard. And how many heads did that leopard have? It had four heads. Uh, representing the four generals that overtook the kingdom of Greece when Alexander the Great died because his son was too young to take the kingdom. 
And so it was divided amongst his four generals. Now eventually, out of all of that came another kingdom, and that was none other than Rome, as we have seen before. Now, Rome is that little horn that we also encountered in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, the little horn came up out of the fourth beast and it uprooted three others. This is papal Rome that is now coming on the scene. And here in Daniel chapter 8, we have a little bit of a different description and yet very similar at the same time. In Daniel 8, we have, um, we have Medo-Persia, we have Greece, we have again the division of Greece, and then we have the coming of another power, which first seems to be conquering geographically, but then he even starts um, conquering, if that's the right word to use, um, vertically towards heaven. He starts blaspheming God. He starts making war on the heavenly host. Now, how do you do that as an earthly power? This must be some religious power that is making war on the truth of God. And that's exactly what happened with the papacy as we know it. The papacy made war on the very truth of scripture and the truth of God. Let's go back and look at the description again in verse 9. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9. And out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. This is Rome still in its pagan um, setting, in its pagan, the pagan uh, Rome, because it was uh, conquering geographically. But then you look at this transition in verse 10. Look at this. It says, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. The prince of the host is Jesus Christ. And so here, this power is making war on Christ. He's making war on the truth. He's making war on the saints as well. If you go a little bit uh, down in the, in the same text there and you go to verse uh, 12, it says, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily and cast truth to the ground and did all this and prospered. So we are looking here at a description of pagan Rome and papal Rome that are advancing and um, not only conquering geographically, but also making war on the very things of God. And so we looked earlier already at Rome and its two phases, pagan Rome and papal Rome. Now this manifests itself particularly in the unity of church and state. Because a church can say what it wants, but it becomes really significant and it becomes a ruling power when it is united with the state and where the state enforces what the church says. And there was a period period of time during the dark ages that the kings of Europe allied, they gave their allegiance they gave their uh, power unto the antichrist unto the papacy which then ruled as um, not only a political power but also as a religious power and so these things are revealed here in prophecy and if you go to the interpretation again look at what Gabriel tells us about this power and what it would do we go down in, in chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, and look at verse 23. Verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive, and shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart and shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. A very clear description of what was going on during these dark ages. Now you might think, you might say, well, why doesn't it just plainly say that this is the papacy? Because didn't it plainly say that the other kingdom represented Medo-Persia and, 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 and that the ram represented Greece? You know, and I've wondered about that myself, but one thing we must bear in mind, and that is that in Bible prophecy, we have a lot of encoded language and symbolic language for the very fact that if it was not symbolic, we probably wouldn't even have this book today. Because in order to secure these teachings, in order to, to protect this truth that was to go to all the world, it was encoded in prophetic language. I mean, if these, if these nations were clearly identified or some of these powers were identified, we could wonder what would have happened to scripture at all. 
And so we must search the scriptures, we must look at the identification marks, and without doubt we can find our way, we can navigate our way through the pages of prophecy with the help of the Spirit of God, and by just basically looking at history and the build-up of prophecy. And it makes it absolutely fascinating. Now, what is the next scene that, that takes place there in Daniel chapter 8? In Daniel chapter 8, we have uh, Medo-Persia, we have Greece, we have then the division of Greece, and then we have the little horn or the pagan Rome, and then leading to papal Rome. And then the very next scene is really the same scene that we also encountered in Daniel chapter 7. And this is again the judgment scene. And yet now it is enlarged, and we have more information, we have more detail as regarding, uh, regarding what happens in that judgment hour before Christ comes. Look at verse 12 and uh, verse 13, rather, verse 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 8. And this language gets a little bit complicated, but if you hang in there, I believe that we'll be able to um, find understanding regarding these verses as we, as we look at the structure of, and the buildup of the prophecy, and also as we come to chapter 9, which gives us more understanding of this, this part of the prophecy. But verse 13 and 14, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, this is the answer, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And so a question is asked, as all this apostasy is seen, as the, as the little horn is marching against God's people, as they are casting truth to the ground, when all this is seen in prophecy, when all this is seen in the vision, the, uh, the question comes, how long shall this vision be? In other words, how long is this apostasy going to continue? How long is this counterfeit worship going to be able to continue? And then how long is the sanctuary or the true worship of God going to be trampled underfoot? And then the answer comes in verse 14, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Now, before we go any further here, we must identify, first of all, a very important principle in Bible prophecy. And we've looked at this principle, I believe it was in our last presentation as well. And that's the principle that in Bible prophecy, a day, a prophetic day, equals a literal year. Uh, we find this principle in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. It says, I have laid on you a day for each year. And all the prophecies that we encounter in the book of Daniel and Revelation, when you apply this principle, it, it matches absolutely beautifully. It matches perfectly. It is clear that we're not talking about literal days, but we're talking about prophetic days, which are in reality years. And so 2,300 days, the 2,300 day prophecy of Daniel 8 verse 14 is in reality talking about 2,300 years, 2,300 years. And it's really obvious that even the prophet Daniel understood that because what happened is when he heard that, when he heard that prophecy unto 2,300 years, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. He didn't really like those words because I want you to, for a moment to put yourself in the, in, in the place of Daniel the prophet. Remember that the entire theme of the book of Daniel is about a kingdom and a sanctuary that has been lost. From the very beginning, Daniel it was, was a Jew and he grew up in Judah. He grew up in Jerusalem and they had a kingdom and they had a sanctuary. The sanctuary was, by the way, very prominent in the entire worship of the Jews. And it was in Jerusalem, you had the temple. It was very important for them. Now, in the very beginning of the book of Daniel, you read how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invades Judah. He conquers Jerusalem. He destroys the sanctuary eventually, and they are now in captivity in Babylon. So what is in the mind of Daniel continually as he receives these visions, as he receives these dreams? He is thinking about the earthly sanctuary in Jerusalem that needs to be restored. And so his mind is thinking about the earthly kingdom, the earthly sanctuary. Now, uh, the fascinating thing of it is that God is giving him prophecies that are not just regarding his time, but they are actually pointing to the end of time. 
Now, that, that made it pretty complicated for the prophet because here he is receiving prophecies regarding the end of time and he is thinking about the literal application is in his very day and age. And so he's thinking about the sanctuary in Jerusalem. He's thinking about the kingdom and he hears about the kingdom being restored. He hears about the sanctuary being restored, not understanding that this is really talking about a heavenly sanctuary and a heavenly kingdom rather than an earthly sanctuary and an earthly kingdom. And so you need to read the prophecies of the book of Daniel almost in two layers. You need to you look at the literal storyline, the literal events and where the prophet is. But then larger than that, there are these apocalyptic prophecies that really point to the end of time. And so when Daniel hears the words that unto 2,300 days, and he understood the principle of a day being a year, because Ezekiel gave that principle, and Ezekiel was a contemporary prophet with the book of, with Daniel in Babylon, so he understood that principle, he calculates and he's thinking, well, how can that be? Because he remembered another prophecy given by Jeremiah, which was also a prophet living at the same time as Daniel. And he had said when they went into captivity, according to Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11, that they would be 70 years in Babylon. And so for the, for the prophet Daniel, this doesn't make sense. They're going to be 70 years in Babylon. And when this prophecy was given here in Daniel chapter 8, they were coming to the end of that 70 years. How could it be that there's now another 2,300 years? until the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. It didn't make sense for him because he was thinking about the literal sanctuary. And yet God was giving him a prophecy regarding the heavenly sanctuary and something that was going to happen in the end of time. As a matter of fact, look at how Gabriel speaks to the prophet and actually um, puts him at peace uh, or tries at least to comfort him uh, regarding the understanding of this latter part of the prophecy, the 2,300-day uh, prophecy and this cleansing of the sanctuary. Um, verse, look at this, verse 26. Verse 26, it says, And the vision, and this is the words of Gabriel to the, to, to the prophet Daniel, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision. That's that's very important, that language there. Seal up the vision, for it refers to what? To many days in the future. It's going to be for many days. Now, Daniel responds in verse 27. It says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. In other words, I had no understanding of it. He even got sick by the fact, by the idea that it was going to take 2,300 years until the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, when he says that I didn't understand the vision, which part of the vision did he not understand? It was regarding the cleansing of the sanctuary. Of course, he understood when Gabriel said to the prophet Daniel, the ram represents Medo-Persia, Daniel was not going like, um, I don't understand. Of course, he understood. That was clear language. When Gabriel said to Daniel, the, 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 um, sorry, the, yes, the ram, the goat, sorry, I, I got that wrong. The goat represents Medo-Persia. The ram represents, no, now I am getting it wrong. Okay, here we go. What, the ram represents what? Medo-Persia, and the goat represents Greece. There we are. Now we got it right. When, when Gabriel said that, of course, that was clear for the prophet. But when it came to these words of the 2,300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary, that's when he did not understand. Now, what is this talking about then? What is really the cleansing of the sanctuary that was, according to Gabriel, a future prophecy for many days, he said? Well, we need to get a little bit background into what the sanctuary is in order to understand what the cleansing of the sanctuary is. Now, if we go back to the sanctuary, the sanctuary was a service of the Jews, of the ancient Jews, that was first erected or first began in the wilderness when they came out of captivity, the captivity of Egypt. They came out of Egypt, and you will remember the story under Moses, and, and uh, the Red Sea was opened up for them. They passed through the Red Sea. They came into the wilderness. They came to Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments were given to them. And then in Exodus chapter 25, you read how God speaks to Moses, and he says, Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. 
That's what God says. God wants to dwell amongst his people, and he's going to dwell among them, not just in his appearance of brightness, because if he would do that, everyone would die immediately. Everyone would evaporate immediately. God could not just show his glory in the camp of the Israelites. So what he does is he shows his glory, or he shows himself to be among them through a service which is called the sanctuary service. Now, the sanctuary service was very, very um, deep. It had a lot of significance. It had a lot of debt, and we... That, uh, we don't really have time to go into it all because if we go through the entire service, it's just going to take too much time. We could have an entire uh, presentation just on the sanctuary service. But what we'll do is we will just walk through the various um, furnitures that we encounter real quickly and so that you can see the meaning of the sanctuary service. If you would walk in, the first thing that you would encounter would be the altar of sacrifice. And that is where you would sacrifice a lamb or a goat or, um, uh, or a ram or something that was, was um, stipulated for the sanctuary service, for the sacrificial service. That was, of course, a symbol and a type of none other than Jesus Christ. And just as uh, Jesus takes our sins upon himself, so the people were to lay their sins upon the goat, upon the lamb, and that lamb was then slain in behalf of them. And they walked out of that sanctuary forgiven and cleansed from sin. So it was a beautiful service. And it pointed forward to what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. That was what it was all about. God wanted to dwell with them, but he couldn't dwell with them because sin stood between them. But through the sanctuary service and the sacrificial service, he could be reconciled to them because their sins would now be removed as they placed it upon this goat or this lamb or this ram or whatever animal was selected for. There were specific animals that were selected for the sacrifices. And they had to be without blemish. They couldn't be with blemish because then it would not represent the purity of Jesus Christ. The animals was representing Christ and so they couldn't go to their flock and say, oh, there's a sick animal, I'll take that one and sacrifice it. That, was, that, that just didn't work. That was not even considered um, uh, acceptable in the sanctuary service. So it had to be an animal without blemish representing Jesus. Then as you walked further, you had, I don't know, you, you don't see it that clear on this picture, but here you had an uh, altar of, um, or a, a, a laver, what they call the laver, which was where the uh, priests would wash their hands and their feet before they would go into the actual tent structure. In the tent structure, you would have two compartments in the sanctuary. Uh, the first compartment was known as the holy place, and the second was known as the most holy place. In the holy place, you would have three objects. You would have the table of shoe bread, where you would have piles of bread there that were each day fresh, freshly made. Then you would have the altar of incense, and you would have the seven-candled lampstand. And basically, all of these objects are really symbols of Jesus, and they're also symbols of um, things in the Christian experience and in the Christian life that we need in order to follow God and to come into his presence again. Think about it for a moment. The showbread, Jesus said in the gospel, he said, I am the bread of life. So that bread that was on those tables is a representation of Christ. Then you have Jesus, he said, I am the light of the world. So the candlestick is a representation again of Jesus. Um, the altar of incense, when you look in, uh, in many scriptures in the Psalms and you find that incense is a symbol of prayer. And so what we have here is really beautifully, we have the Christian experience of, 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 of partaking of the word of God because the bread is also a symbol of the word. Jesus is the word. We partake of the word of God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can shine out into this world. We can put the character of Jesus on display. That's, char- that's pictured by the seven-candled um, seven golden uh, seven golden candlestick. And then we have, last but not least, of course, here, the altar of incense, which is, of course, a picture of our prayer life. Many times uh, in the Christian experience, if one of these three is lacking, um, what happens? It's like a downhill experience. If we don't pray, we don't partake of the word, we don't witness of Jesus, downward experience. But when all these three elements are in place, that's when we really thrive in our experience with God. And so the last uh, part of this sanctuary was known as the most holy place. And here we have the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, we have the Ten Commandment Law. And the high priest 
uh, and the priest would officiate there in the, mo- in the holy place uh, every single day. But only once a year would they actually go into the most holy place. And there was only one person that could go into the most holy place, and that was the high priest. And when he went into the most holy place, it was on the Day of Atonement. And what happened on the Day of Atonement is that the sins that were symbolically carried into the sanctuary in the daily services were now blotted out or done away with, really symbolizing the ultimate, not only forgiveness, but blotting out of sin in the end of time. It's a beautiful thing because... When you as a sinner, uh, imagine you were a Jew and you committed a sin and you took an animal into the sanctuary, you put your hands on that animal and you confessed your sins, the sins were symbolically transferred to that animal, that animal was slain on the altar of sacrifice in the outer court, then the blood of that animal was taken into the holy place and it was applied there, it was actually sprinkled on the veil as a symbol of the sins now entering into the holy place and then on the day of atonement, once a year, as the high priest moved into the most holy place, an atonement was made so that the sins that symbolically were carried into the sanctuary were blotted out forever. And this is all a symbolic action of really what God wants to do in the plan of salvation. Because God not only forgives us, but ultimately, according to the new covenant promise in the, in, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews and, and other places you read about the new covenant promise, is that God not only wants to forgive our sins, but he wants to blot out our sins. And in the end of time, we have a prophecy that points to this very moment of the blotting out of sins. Now, on that day of atonement, it was not only, and which was also referred to as the cleansing of the sanctuary, and there we have that language that we encounter in Daniel chapter 8. The cleansing of the sanctuary was the removal of sin from the sanctuary. Now, if you did not confess your sins, and if you did not bring your sins into the sanctuary, then your sins were still in your heart and in your mind. They were still in you. They, they were not they were, there was none other place to bring those sins. You could either bring them into the sanctuary and ultimately they would be blotted out on the Day of Atonement or you would carry those sins yourself. It was either one or the other. And so the Day of Atonement or the cleansing of the sanctuary also became known as a Day of Judgment. A Day of Judgment because it was really the point where, where there was a finality to sin. And if you had not brought your sins into the sanctuary, then you carried them yourself. And, and, and what happened on the Day of Atonement was that um, the Jews that continued to sin openly and uh, boldly without bringing their sins into the sanctuary were cut off from the people of God. So it was also a moment of finality. It was a moment of ultimate judgment. Now, putting all these facts together of the earthly sanctuary and its service really help us to understand more of what is going on in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. Because in Daniel chapter 8, we have a prophecy that talks about the sanctuary being cleansed after a period of 2,300 days or 2,300 years, if we apply the day-year principle there. And this brings us to the latter time, or it brings us to the um, closer to the end of Earth's history, because towards the end of this Earth's history, and we're going to actually pinpoint the date as we move into Daniel chapter 9, there would be also a finality, a moment in which the um, cleansing of the sanctuary, not on Earth would take place, but the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40 that all the things that were made in the earthly sanctuary were only a pattern or a type of something larger. It says there, and look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee in the mount. Uh, Psalm 77 verse 13 says, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And so we have a larger picture of the sanctuary in, 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 in heavenly places. And when you read the book of Hebrews, for example, that is a book that is full of pictures of the heavenly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary was only a pattern or a type of something in heaven where Jesus Christ, as our high priest, officiates in that sanctuary. And there are beautiful promises in Hebrews chapter, uh, various chapters there of the book of Hebrews, of Christ being our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. 
and showing us also, according to prophecies, prophecies found in the book of Daniel and Revelation, that Jesus Christ is now in the most holy place, and this time of the cleansing of the sanctuary is really uh, on its way. It is taking place, and it will finally take place, ultimately, uh, before he comes back the second time. Now, let's go back to our prophecy here in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. It says, he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now we have a time period here, but we don't have a beginning date. We don't know where this prophecy begins. And uh, it cannot be talking about the earthly sanctuary because the earthly sanctuary was destroyed in 70 AD, ultimately. So we must be looking here at a heavenly sanctuary. But what is the beginning date for us in order for us to arrive at the end of this 2,300-year prophecy or the period of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary with Jesus Christ as our high priest? Well, to answer that, we need to go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 begins with the prayer of the prophet Daniel. Remember that he did not understand this portion of the prophecy. He did not understand the cleansing of the sanctuary. He thought it was the sanctuary, talking about the sanctuary on earth in Jerusalem. And so he became even sick. He was astonished. He was amazed. And so he starts praying. And Daniel chapter 9, the first part of that chapter, and you can read it in your own time. You read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 23 or verse 19. And then also the first uh, verse 20, 21, 22, and 23 uh, shows um, the coming of Gabriel there to give understanding. Because Daniel is praying and bringing the sins of the people before the throne of God because he understands that something is wrong. Something is wrong. They were supposed to return as a people shortly to rebuild the earthly sanctuary. Now, with the understanding of that prophecy of 2,300 years, something is not right. And so he prays earnestly for the deliverance of his people. As a matter of fact, he even quotes the prophet Jeremiah in verse 2, I believe it is. Look at this, oh, verse, verse 2, yes, in, in, in chapter 9. He says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the, des in the desolations of Jerusalem. So there would be 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And then he prays that the people of God will be ready to return back. It is a prayer of repentance. It is a prayer of confession. It is a prayer of, of renewing his dedication to God and, and actually uh, bringing supplications um, for the people so that they can be united and fulfill the prophecy of going back and restoring Jerusalem. Now, then Gabriel again comes to the prophet and gives him an understanding of the 2,300. Not only an understanding of the 2,300 prophecy, but also an understanding of what was going to happen to the Jews as a nation. So when Gabriel comes again in Daniel chapter 9, he's beginning where Daniel is, and he's giving him an understanding of what's going to happen to his people, but then more than that, he also gives us the beginning date of this grand prophecy of 2,300 years. Take notice of verse, we'll pick it up in verse um, 20. Verse 20, it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I, have to, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Now verse 24, here comes the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, if we would just have to sum up what Gabriel is saying there, is he says, 70 weeks are given for you to make things right, for your people to make things right. The very reason why the Jews were in captivity was because they had diverted from the path of God. And Gabriel says, you have 70 weeks to make things right. Now, of course, these are, again, not 70 literal weeks, 
but we apply the day-year principle of Bible prophecy, and then they become uh, 490 years. Seven times 70 is, of course, 490. That would be prophetic days, day-year principle. We have 490 literal years were given to the Jews. The very reason why they're in Babylon is because they walked contrary to God's ways. They are going to now return, and yet a period of probation is given to them, 70 weeks, 490 years. What were, they to do? what were they to do? They were to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. In other words, to make things right, to follow the Lord so that he could bless them. Now, when did this prophecy begin? Look at the next verse, verse 25. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and, seven, and 62 weeks. Know therefore, it says, from the, from the command, um, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Right there, we have the very beginning date of the prophecy, the degree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Now, that was given in the year 457 BC as they ultimately received the full authority to return and to rebuild Jerusalem and to build the temple. Now, when that command was given, the prophecy starts, and within the 70-week prophecy, some things were going to happen. So from 457, we have 70 weeks of 490 years given to the Jews as a nation to make things right. But within that 70 weeks, within that 490 years, something was going to happen. As a matter of fact, we have here a prophecy of the Messiah himself. Fascinating prophecy. Look at verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks, that is 69 weeks. So there would be 69 weeks or that would account to 483 literal years. You think of 490 years minus seven is 483 years. Now, what was going to happen? It would bring us to Messiah the Prince. Now, take notice of this. This is fascinating. The degree to rebuild was given in 457 BC. And then we take the 69 week, weeks or 483 years, and we end up in 27 AD. And the question is, what happened in 27 AD? Is there some event in 27 AD that also corresponds with the Messiah or Jesus? And there is indeed. The word Messiah means the anointed one. And in the year 27 AD, Jesus Christ was baptized or anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. God anointed Jesus, it says in the book of Acts, uh, uh, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So in the 15th year of Tiberius, which was year 27 AD, it was the year that Jesus was baptized, which was the anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And it talks about here in the prophecy that the Messiah would be anointed after how long? After 62 weeks plus 7 weeks, so that's 69 weeks, beginning in 457, 483 years, and we come right in 27 AD. Absolutely fascinating that we have a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 of the Messiah himself and when he would come. So let's, let's look at this again now. The degree to rebuild Jerusalem, 457 BC. Then we have 483 years, which brings us to 27 AD, which was the baptism. But there is still one week left, one prophetic week or seven years to fulfill this, this prophecy of 70 weeks. Now, we have seven years left, one week being seven years. Listen to what the prophecy says would happen um, during that time. Verse 26, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the Messiah shall be what? Shall be cut off according to the prophecy. Then in verse 27, the first part of the verse 27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week... He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. 
He, the Messiah, would bring an end to sacrifice and offering in the middle of the week. In the middle of the week. He would cause sacrifice to cease. Now, did Jesus cause sacrifice to cease when he died on the cross? Absolutely. He was the sacrifice. He was the lamb, the antitypical lamb, and the atonement had been made. There was no need to sacrifice lambs after the coming of Jesus. He caused sacrifice to cease, and he did it exactly on time, according to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. After three and a half years... That, what is a half of seven? Three and a half. So three and a half years from the fall of 27 AD, the time of the baptism, leads us to the spring of 31 AD, and that's exactly the year that Jesus was crucified. So the prophecy of Daniel 9 stands the test of time, Partic particularly as we look here at Daniel chapter 9 and all the, the facets and the, and the events within this 70-week prophecy, this 490-year uh, uh, prophecy. We still have three and a half years left of this prophecy. Uh, Christ was crucified exactly on time. Uh, Matthew 27 tells us that when Jesus, when he had cried uh, again with a loud voice, uh, yielded up the ghost. This was on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. And listen to what happened. It says, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Uh, there was no longer need for an earthly sanctuary, and this was manifested by an angel that ripped the veil of the temple in two. And this happened on the very moment that Jesus cried out, it is finished, on the cross. And now, of course, our attention is drawn to the heavenly sanctuary. There's no longer an earthly sanctuary where with earthly sacrifices, but our focus is now on the heavenly sanctuary in the new covenant. Now, there was still three and a half years of this 70-week prophecy, which would bring us to 34 AD. And it's interesting because this was the end of the 70-week prophecy, or the probation for the Jews as a nation would close in that year if they would not turn around. According to Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel says, you and your people are given 70 weeks, you're given 490 years to make things right. At the end of that 490 years, we come to the year 34 AD, and did they make things right? Well, what happened in the year 34 AD? In the year 34 AD, we find that the first disciple, the first apostle was martyred, and that was Stephen. Stephen was taken before the council because of his preaching. And you can read this account in Acts chapter 7 and 8, or chapter 7 uh, particularly, um, how he defends um, uh, his preaching before the council of the Jews and he actually goes over the history of the Jews as a nation showing how God has led them step by step by step but how they have rejected the call of God and then they become so fiercely anger, angry with this man that they pull him they, 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 they take him and they carry him out and they stone him to death and this is the very uh, year of 34 AD that this happened and from that moment um, Saul, which later became known as Paul, started preaching the gospel after his conversion to the gospels. And so now, uh, sorry, to the Gentiles. And so the gospel is now going to the Gentiles. The probation for the Jews as a nation has closed in the year 34 AD. That, does, that doesn't mean that a Jew cannot be saved after that, but of course he is saved the way any other is saved, and that is through the blood of Jesus, and not, by, not because he has some advantage of being the chosen people of God. But now they are, uh, the gospel is now going to the entire world, to spiritual Israel, to many countries and lands, through the preaching of Paul and many others. Now, you're saying, now, what does this all have to do with the 2,300? How does this tie into the 2,300-year uh, prophecy of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary? Well, it ties in in a very special way. Because what happened just after 34 AD? In the year 70 AD, the earthly sanctuary of the Jews was destroyed by the Roman army. And so our attention is now on the heavenly sanctuary. And when we go back to this prophecy here, this 2,300-year prophecy, we have a beginning date in Daniel chapter 9, which is 457 B.C., the, the command to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. And the first 490 years, as you see on this chart, were given to the Jews. They were events that would happen with the Jews as a nation, even involving the uh, crucifixion of Jesus prophesied and the baptism of Jesus prophesied. But you take this prophetic line and you draw it out 
um, and you take the 2,300 years beginning in 457 and you end up in the year 1844. That's the year where you then end up if you count that prophecy. Now, what happened in the year 1844? Simply, Jesus Christ, as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, moved into the most holy place of that heavenly sanctuary, just like the high priest on earth once a year would move into the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary to perform this final act of the cleansing of the sanctuary. In other words, the cleansing of the sanctuary, or the hour of judgment, began in 1844, and it has been ongoing ever since, even to the very day and age in which we live. This cleansing of the sanctuary is a process in which the books are opened and the lives are investigated right all the way back from creation, from the, from the, first, uh, par- from the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and then their sons and their daughters. All the lives are investigated in heaven. There's an investigation going on as to who has brought their sins into the sanctuary, who has um, brought their sins to Jesus Christ and then right up to to the very time in which we're living, and we do not know when Jesus is going to return. There's no date given, no hour is given. But when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds of heaven, when the second coming takes place, that is when the final cleansing of the sanctuary has been utterly finished. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, and we'll get to this a little bit later in our in our presentations, um, we, there's even a, a, a whole chapter that deals with this of how uh, in the heavenly sanctuary there is a closing of this um, uh, antitypical day of atonement, this 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 cleansing of the sanctuary. It ends. Jesus Christ comes out of the heavenly sanctuary, and then he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. But right now, Jesus is still in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and the hour of judgment is right here, right now, and the sanctuary is being cleansed, and you and I can bring our sins to Jesus and praise God. He cleanses them, and ultimately, he wants to blot them out if we come to him by faith. And so Daniel chapter 8 has this incredible prophecy of the cleansing of the sanctuary and the time of judgment, the hour of judgment. The hour of judgment, my friends, is good news for those that put their faith in Jesus. The hour of judgment is good news for those that trust in the lamb that has been slain for them. And so you see a beautiful structure in the book of Daniel. What we have seen that is in Daniel chapter 7, you have all those different kingdoms. Remember, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome. Then you have the judgment setting and the second coming of Christ. That's Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 8 is a repetition and enlargement. And it shows us again, it starts with Medo-Persia this time. Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome, and then again it shows us the judgment scene, but then from the perspective of the sanctuary, the sanctuary being cleansed, which is also the hour of judgment. And then in Daniel chapter 9, it gives us the beginning date of the cleansing of the sanctuary, which was the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem in 457 BC, which we then count the 2,300-year prophecy ending up in 1844. And in that prophecy of Daniel 9, we not only have the beginning date that leads us to when the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven began, but we also have a prophecy containing the Jews as a nation and what happened to them and what happened to Jesus Christ, his baptism and his crucifixion. It's absolutely astonishing to see how God has given messages through his prophet to show us what is to come and so how we can put our trust in these prophetic messages. And above all, that prophecy becomes more than just a theory for us of knowing what the future holds, but that it becomes a sure anchor in which we have our faith rooted and grounded in the firm word of God so that we can have, what, that we can know that whatever is ahead of us, that we can trust in Jesus Christ and his plan for us. I think I would just like to go to this final text. We'll skip this for a moment. I think I have one last text here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. 
My friends, that is really the conclusion of the matter. We have come to a time where we need to follow Jesus Christ in obedience, in obedience to his commandments, to his law. Now, we cannot do that in our own strength. We can try to be obedient and we will utterly fail. But through the power that is made available through Jesus and the spirit, the Holy Spirit that he has promised, we will be able to be a commandment-keeping people and we will be able to put our faith in our advocate, Jesus Christ, which will stand by our side in that hour of judgment so that our sins can be blotted out when he comes in the skies of heaven. And so it's my prayer that each one of you will experience just that. Let's pray in closing. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this prophecy that we've been able to look at tonight. We want to thank you for the accuracy of your word and also for the invitation of your word, the invitation to come to you as our high priest, to come to you even at this time in which you want to forgive our sins and ultimately blot out our sins. What a great message. What a hope. And we come to you with the confidence, Lord, that you will do in us what you have promised. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.